This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this special interview episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today I am very excited to be sitting down virtually and speaking with a writer. She's a voting Grammy member, a singer, a songwriter, an actress. Just, just I mean, I'm going to have her kind of go over a little bit of her biography here, but uh, Natalie Nicole Gilbert. So we are going to be talking about of course, the strikes, which we are just to let you know, we're recording this on the morning of Sunday, September 24th. So the strikes are still going now, but maybe by the time you hear this, that might have changed. Fingers crossed. Hopefully that's the case. We'll see. <laughs> so we are going to talk about that, but I also do want to talk about music, of course, because if you're a listener, a frequent listener, you know that music is my number one love. So to be able to talk to someone about music who creates music is an even bigger joy for me. So I'm very excited about that. So welcome first, Natalie, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. The way this all happened is all because of Carla. So shout out to my unofficial co-host, Carla. So thank you so much, Carla, for helping to make this happen. Um, and if you want to just, before we get into everything, if you want to just let everybody know a little bit of your background, because I know you you work in music and everything like that. So if you want to get just a little bit of a detail on that. Thank you so much again uh, for having me on the show. I, I, yeah, I really started in musical theater growing up. I began dance lessons when I was three and doing musicals, you know, long before I hit 10. And so I was Maria in West Side Story. I performed with the Louisville Ballet and Walden Theater. And, and I was in a number of companies before I even graduated high school. And it really gave me such a wide breadth of background to do everything from, you know, the Nutcracker to Macbeth and all these classics to more contemporary black box theater things. Um, so, and sometimes it would be, you know, at Freedom Hall with 14,000 people. And other times it would be that black box theater with 90 people um, where it was just very intimate. You were right in their face. Um, and then we also did a lot of stage or a lot of uh, screen uh, time as well. A lot of TV shows, a lot of independent films and big studio films. But it, it's just been such a, a beautiful 
congealing of all these different genres. I I've always felt so blessed that I've been exposed to so many different things. And I really think that comes through in my work, in my music, in my acting, all of that, my, certainly in my writing as well. Um, but I really appreciate, even though it completely confounds industry people, that I don't have to live in the space of one genre, you know, whether that's acting or music or anything else. In my music, I kind of stroll between everything from uh, a classical cover of PAA Zoo and my own original acapellas and the Celtic vein, a few Celtic songs. Uh, it onto jazz, onto soul and Americana, uh, to rock and EDM by my producer who like specializes in that and is remixing JLo and Ariana during the day. Um, so it's got this wide breadth of everything from acoustic to electric and everything in between. And my feeling is always when people say, what's your genre? I say soundtrack, you know, uh, <laughs> because it, it isn't one genre. It's just this vibe. It's ethereal. It's it's emotive. And I do sometimes do covers, but I try to find the B-side gems, the things that people aren't as familiar with. It's not to draw people to me. It's to introduce you to like most people don't even know that the Annie musical had a sequel. So I love introducing them to this beautiful piano ballad that was in that that I often use from my theater auditions. And, you know, all of that followed me out to Los Angeles. And uh, when I came here 17 years ago and has just been such a wealth of background to pull from. Um, I like to include all of that in my sound. I like people not quite being able to put their finger on what my origin story is when they listen to me or watch me. But I think that versatility is so important. And it has also given me such exposure to wonderful collaborators as well. And that is such a big piece of the puzzle, whether it's film or music as well. Awesome. And um, I know that you also have recently, you, you wrote like your first play as well, right? Your first stage play. Good. Yes. Uh, I had this kind of weird uh, research study experience uh, that wound up kind of presenting itself almost like a memoir with the questions they were asking me about real life stories and the exploration of human emotion. And I said, wow, I walked out of that experience going, this is like a one woman play where I'm just being interviewed. So I, I took the real experience. I took a lot of the actual material I, I shared in that interview two hour interview. And I put it down into like a one hour, one woman stage play where my interviewer is off stage. And it's the first time I've written, as you say, it's the first time I've gone the stage play, stage play uh, direction, which is kind of funny because I did so many stage plays growing up. But I'm much more of like a screenwriter, a songwriter, a poet. Um, I do like writing in different formats, even, you know, articles and that sort of thing. But yeah, it, it is different to try that on. I think um, you, you were saying earlier how unique the stage play experience is and how daunting it can be because it, you have to keep people's attention for that hour or two solidly. You know, you're not just right. Mm -hmm. Don't have to with a film or TV script, but you're able to come back in and out of those commercial breaks, maybe. And, uh, you know, people are hitting pause or streaming as they can and binge watching. But with a stage play, you're on that whole time. And it is like, I, I, I'm sure, you know, I've just done what we call in screenplay writing my first vomit draft. I need to go back through and, and do some editing and tightening, I'm sure. But I was really pleased that I wrote the whole thing in one sitting. And I know I, I almost, I was, I kept, I just kept telling myself, just keep going until you feel you're ready. You know, I stayed up until 5am in the morning, but I feel really good about it. And everybody who's read it so far and has seen the kind of twist that I added at the, the end, that's a little different from the reality of the research study I participated in. I feel really good about it. I'm I'm surprisingly pleased with how it turned out for being my first one. Yeah. Wow. That just, that's, sorry. That is just, that just blows my mind. I'm not, <laughs> I am, 
I mean, I, I can see that for like when I was in film school and having to write like a short, like you're writing like a little, that makes sense because you have the time constraints already, but oh my, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Well, congratulations on that. Being able to, I mean, writing a first draft in just one, I mean, man. And yeah, I think um, I had someone when um, when I was in theater, because I used to do theater a lot and helped run a, um, a company here and stuff, but a small little, little company. And I was told, because I've never attempted that, I've only written screenplays because it kind of scares me. It seems very daunting because I know with screenplays, screen, you know, film is very much the director's medium and stage is very much an actor's medium. So you have to approach the writing differently. And I'm sure that was... Was, was that like really different kind of thing to think of it in that kind of way of like it being a different kind of medium? Yeah, it was. Um, and I, because one of my characters, and even though on 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 the whole, it kind of reads like a one woman play, a uh, one woman show, um, I do have a person off stage doing all the interview questions, you know? And one of my friends was saying, would you play the woman on stage? And I was like, Oh, you know, even though I've named her after me, and because there are some jokes about her name built into the script, um, I genuinely didn't even think about my playing her. I was just writing it for somebody else. I think, if anything, I would like to play the interviewer off stage, you know. And there, there are some questions by the end about who these people actually are, if they are the people that we've believed that they are all along. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I like that it also talks. It also addresses AI. Uh, both inadvertently and and directly. Um, so I think it's, I hope that it will feel kind of fresh, but also timeless at the same time. Um, but I, I absolutely agree with you. It is daunting. Um, so daunting to your point that I said, I don't know if I want to write this in a stage play format from the get-go. I think I need to write in the in the software that I'm familiar with. So I wrote it in Final Draft <laughs> and then I reformatted it to be a stage play <laughs> because that's that's the dialogue format I'm used to working in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That just, wow. Well, that's incredible. So seriously, congratulations again on that. That's really amazing. And then moving to the strike here. And once again, we're recording this on Sunday, September 24th. So the strike is still going. It could be over by now, fingers crossed. But I wanted to know, I know you're you're a member of SAG-AFTRA. You just recently became a part of that union. And so what I really want to know is, I, I think a lot of people think that all actors are rich celebrities and that they're, that they're just these rich people complaining and what are they complaining about? What do you want the public to know? Like, why is it that it's so, why are these strikes so important? Well, first of all, uh, to your point, you know, I did join just recently, I joined almost, you know, just a few weeks really before the strikes. And I was so happy and eager to join because the union for us doesn't simply like give us a card into a members club. The point of the union is protections and that we can uh, become eligible for the health benefits and the pension. But as you likely well know, uh, those benefits don't become available to you until per membership year, you have reached a threshold of $26,000 in earnings. And, you know, for the average American, that is, that's poverty level, honestly, 26,000. And yet mm-hmm. 87% of the union actors do not hit that mark each fiscal, you know, membership year. So only 13% even qualify for basic health insurance coverage. And furthermore, uh, you have to keep qualifying each year at that same degree. Like 
just once you've qualified, it doesn't naturally continue, automatically continue. You have to keep hitting that mark every year. So you have to keep getting cast, keep auditioning, keep doing those episodes. Um, and most of us don't hit that low bar mark. So yeah, definitely we are not all wealthy. But the point of the union is to to solidarity uh, link ourselves, you know, to, to come forth united and approach the studios and make sure that we are getting our mealtime breaks, uh, not working hours that we're not being paid for. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the producers and directors going into this made a big mistake in thinking that if they tried to freeze us out before the strike began, that we either wouldn't strike at all or that the strike would be short. Um, so even though technically the strike began in early May, uh, effectively, it began back in February when a lot of the shows were already closing down early to try to prevent us from having the resources and the savings to strike come May. Uh, but what they didn't get is that so we were already uh, living at that poverty level, most, most of us. Uh, so we, of course, were still going to strike because we're not getting residuals for uh, all the streaming stuff, which is the more popular format these days. And the AMPTP is made up of the larger studios like Warner Brothers and Disney, but also Netflix. And, you know, those internet streamers that are newer and tech-driven are going to have very wants, very different wants and needs from those legacy studios like Warner Brothers and Disney. Disney. And that's why they're having so much conflict and they've had so much trouble coming to the table and agreeing. I, I, there have been rumors, but I think that there's substantiation there that um, the legacy studios are more willing and ready to make deals with us, but they've been having trouble getting the streamers on board. Um, so yeah, the, the writers struck in May, the actors have since joined them. We are now approaching 150 days of striking, but really, it's as I say, it's been longer than that because they really started the strike ahead of when the strike began by freezing us out of work. So we've been unemployed for about seven months now. So, But I think that the producers thought that we would be so desperate to get back to work and get that money that... Uh, we would accept any offer given to us. And that's just not the case. We've we've been going too long, not being rewarded appropriately for the work that we do. And I think that now, you know, almost 150 days into the strike, they realized we were always going to strike and we were always going to ask for what we're due. Our, uh, what we're asking for is very reasonable and it's doable. You know, we've proven with the math over and over again that it's such a small percentage of their budget. And in fact, Warner Brothers and other studios have already lost much more than that during the strike. Um, and they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble and a lot of money if they just would have been reasonable and come to the table sooner. But at least they're in talks now. Uh, and I am hopeful, as you are, that hopefully maybe in the next week, the strike will finally end. But even if it does, you and I know as screenwriters that you know stuff will still need to go through development and writing and casting. And that still doesn't leave actors acting again, probably until next February. That will have been a whole year. And that means that many of them will not qualify for that health insurance. People that qualified for years will be kicked off their health insurance if they haven't been already. And, you know, and we're talking about, you know, some, we're not all sprightly, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm fortunate, but there are a lot of people who are in the midst of cancer treatments or, mm. you know, any myriad number of valid health concerns who now don't have coverage. And I, I just think that's an atrocity. And I, I don't know how the studios can sleep at night, not only watching people lose their homes, but watching their health insurance be lost as well for whole families. This isn't just the writers themselves. It's also their dependents as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what people really miss in all of this is the fact that people just kind of look at entertainment and people who are creating entertainment 
And I think a lot of times I really think people forget that there are actual human beings behind everything you are watching. And I think people just live in this world where they think everybody is a huge star if they're doing that and they're making a lot of money. So there's no room for any complaint. People should just entertain. It's the same thing of like when people don't want actors or creators to speak out about politics. It's the same thing. It's like stay in your corner, mind your, mind your place. This is where you belong and you're not allowed to speak out. And I really hope, though, that this strike, which I think for some people it did, makes people realize, you know, that it that it takes. First of all, it takes a village to make any piece of artwork, any a film, a television show. I don't I don't think people have any clue how many people it takes to really make that. And so I'm hoping maybe people will see that. And I also think this strike is part of a bigger picture that happened because of the pandemic, where a lot of people went, that's it. We can't be treated like this anymore. And I think that's probably what AMPTP and the streamers they were not expecting was, you know, it may be if this had happened at another time, it wouldn't be that way or something like that. So. And I think, unfortunately, some people think that our our timing is completely our own choosing, you know, that why did you guys strike right at the end of the pandemic when you were already hurting? And and it's it's not that we wanted to strike then, it's that our contract expired at that time. And so it was time Mm -hmm. to negotiate the new one. We had already put forward what our requests were for. We came to the table willing to negotiate, um, but they weren't willing to negotiate. They pushed back right away and they simply weren't willing to talk. Um, so yeah, it's, it's time. It absolutely is time, as you say. Yeah. And, and with the AI stuff, that's something everybody needs to worry about. This is not just something everybody needs to be worried about AI. It's terrifying. (laughs) I was uh, talking to my partner last night about, uh, his work in video games. And he said, one of his dear friends who works in, um, storyboard design just lost his job outright to AI already. And he said, his friend said, I just didn't realize it could or would happen this fast, you know? And I think a lot of people are being caught off guard that way, that they're not, they're not realizing we're not talking about something like so futuristic that we're looking at it in 2050. It's happening right now. You know, they, there are already actors and writers and artists who have been put out of work by the existing software. And to be frank, the existing software isn't brilliant. It it isn't that great. Um, I mean, everybody, most people have tried jet, chat GPT, at least even for like search <laughs> optimization, you know, like using it as Google, it's a fancy, fancy Google in a way, you know, um, but you can see that there are flaws in the way, I mean, it is helpful. It can be helpful. It, it, it It's a tool, but it's, it's becoming more than a tool. It's, it's becoming a worker. And of course, companies that want to, you know, augment, their profits are going to turn to that outlet to do. And look, we're not saying that you can't use AI at all. I I personally feel that there are ways that AI could make sense, but not when it's replacing people. And I think that the other thing that producers and directors, but producers, especially big studios, especially really don't grasp is that not only is that software not yet up to the task, no matter how much they think it is with their backroom development of some things. But also there is such tenured talent here. And I, I keep coming back to this imagery in my mind, Aaron, of, um, I don't know if, if you're, if you follow ice skating at all as one of your fandoms, 
my older sister introduced me to this and the history of ice skating is such that I think it was either the Canadian or American team, somebody in North America back maybe in the seventies, all of the Olympic ice skaters for one team were on one plane, never put the royalty on one plane and it crashed. And for decades, it took ages for the people who had been grooming underneath them, who were not supposed to go to the Olympics for another 10 or 20 years to be ready, you know? And, and there were are many ice skaters from that time that will openly tell you they did not feel ready. And they were so heartbroken for the loss to their art community, to the ice skating community, to the Olympic community of all these wonderful skaters, you know? And I, I don't think it is understood fully yet that already during the strikes, there has been the same event occurring with writers, actors, and all the other crew, because, you know, we, we say it's the writer striking and the actor striking, and that is true, but everybody else is affected as well. All your crew people, your camera people, everything behind the scenes. And to your point, you know, you were saying, oh, you know, everybody is probably so rich and so lucky. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, they, you're famous. Just be happy that you're famous, you know, but to your point, most of us are not really famous, especially the people working behind the scenes, especially the below the line crew. And all of them are equally impacted. You know, there there are people whose kids are in the midst of cancer treatment who, what are they going to do right now? You know, America's health system, that's a whole different. Whew, yeah, I agree. That's what you just did. I agree. Um, yeah. Okay. I have a lot of friends in Canada and I know that's not a perfect system either, but but, you know, we have to give people living wages. We have to give people fair compensation for their work so that they can stay in their apartments and their homes. They can provide for their families. We're not talking about second and third yachts. That's stuff for the producers. You know, to your point, we are absolutely talking about rent, utilities, basic health care coverage, um, and making sure that people have access to that. But yeah, AI is, um, it, it's such an odd thing because I think it's only really been recent months that this conversation has become as well understood by the general public as it has, but the understanding is still sort of um, ephemeral. They they still don't understand that it's becoming more and more tangible and more and more relevant to, to their own lives every day. They may think, oh, AI can never do my job, but more and more people are discovering AI is already doing a lot of those jobs and it will take more people's jobs quite quickly. Yeah. And, you know, the big thing with AI with, I think with um, anything creative or the arts is the thing you are missing with AI is you're missing the humanity and you're missing people. I mean, AI is not going to know what a lived experience is. AI is not going to know what it means to fall in love, to be scared, to be happy, all, all the different emotions that you have to get across in a piece of art. And AI just doesn't understand that. It just won't because it doesn't have a soul. So, that's, yeah. Well, the writer yourself, you probably understand that so much of our work is beautiful accidents, you know, like uh, th sometimes the stories will write themselves for us, like a one sitting stage play. But to your point, you know, that the humanity uh, comes through in the ways that we don't even intend to insert it because it comes through inherently through us. When I songwrite, I love to do internal rhymes. I love to, uh, to write lines where you think that the next line is a continuation of the, the prior one, but I've kind of tricked you and I'm using that word in two different ways or something. And could you ask AI to do that? You could, but AI is 
reach for iambic pentameter and general rhyme schemes of the ABABC method or something, you know, it's going to try to follow formulas because that's how it's been coded. That's how it's been built. But you're so right, you know, bringing that human touch to it. That is what makes us cry when we watch that that show. I read a, an article years ago about somebody who went to see Medea and uh, it was an audience member who was offended originally. And they said, I really felt originally that your, your depiction of this woman mourning her son was completely overdone. It was so loud and obnoxious and it went on so long. But then I lost my own child. And everything I saw on the stage was exactly what I felt. And I don't think people understand that that is what art is supposed to do. It's not us trying to get attention for our, our music. I, I write songs for myself. Some of the songs I write, I, I'd never have any intention of releasing. I get, I can get a little upset if I have to release them, actually, for various reasons. But I think people forget that music and art in general and, and you know, dramatic arts, film and TV are all made to inspire us, to help us feel, to help us grieve. And... I, I just don't think that something created by AI is going to give us that same opportunity at the same depth. It's going to feel shallow. Like you say, it's going to feel manufactured. And can it improve over time? I'm sure it can. But also the coding is only as good as the people that are putting it in. You know, who who is coding and what are they designing it for? You know, because I think, frankly, we have a lot of the same problems in our laws, you know, Um the, the people need to be involved at all of those stages, not just the people who think that they know what's best for us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And, um, and going back to the music a little bit, because everyone should know this is my favorite thing in the world is music. I wish I could sing. I wish I could sing. That's one thing I'm like I could, I never, never could really, really um, sing. I've done it in improv once as a, it was part of a, a little thing of like, it wasn't necessarily doing it as a good thing. <laughs> but Music for me inspires everything I write. I have to listen to music while I'm writing. I can listen to a piece of a, a song or something and I instantly see like a, I describe it as like a trailer of something that I'm going to write. And so I'm wondering, you know, that process of writing music, because that's got to be, that's a different medium than writing a screenplay, writing a stage play. So how does that start? Like, where do you get your inspiration to for writing songs and everything like that? Very a lot for me. Um, and a lot of people talk about like formulas going into like, do they do they write the words first or do they start with the music element? And for me, a lot of that comes down to what the end 
outcome is that you're reaching for. You know, if I, I recently wrote a lullaby sort of song for a very dear friend of mine who had gone through some difficult times recently, uh, I had as well. And to be honest, we had fallen out of touch a bit, not, not even out of touch. We had seen each other and we'd gone out for dinner and been in touch during that time, but it wasn't to it, with the frequency that we had had previously. And both of us felt the weight of that. And, you know, he told me, um, you know, I, when we spent uh, dinner together the other day, I just felt like I, I breathed again for the first time uh, in a way that I hadn't in ages. And, and I realized, you know, that I, I had stung him by being out of touch and kind of holding what I was going through with the strike a little closer to my chest than maybe I should have. Um, so I wrote this song for him just saying, I'm never as far away as I seem like I am. Call or message and I'll be where you, right where you are. And I honestly, I sent it to him and I, I wasn't planning on doing anything else with it, you know? <laughs> um, but an opportunity came up for me to go ahead and release it. And I had the opportunity to pass it to a dear collaborator of mine, Amy Tilson Lumetta, who is very gifted in musical stage sounds and in ballads, gorgeous piano ballads. She has a, a beautiful voice. Uh, so she took it and really brought it to life, really made it 3D, maybe 5D, really, to an extent that it just it kind of gives you chills. And we've already had a um, I, I can't say names, of course, but we've already had a a movie network approach us about potentially using the song in end titles. And that happened within weeks of when I'd actually written it at home, you know. Wow. Um, so I, for me, those stories are just kind of crazy to me because it's mind blowing to me to think this little thing that the first demo of is just me singing a cappella at two in the morning quietly on my phone becomes this gorgeous orchestral sounding ballad that seems like it's from a musical or a much larger soundtrack that you can tell is an ongoing conversation between two people that really are connected and care about each other. And I think that some of the best songs out there, um, and I'm, I'm not saying this is my best work, although I'm very proud of that one. Uh, I think some of the best work out there is conversational like that. It is trying to capture a moment in time. Maybe it's something you want to say to someone, something you want to remind them of, or something that you're hopeful about, or something um, that you imagine, you know? And I, I think it's such a beautiful opportunity, a lot like poetry. A lot of my songs do begin as poems, actually. Um, when I journal, a lot of the time it comes out in poetry form because I like to be a little opaque and I like to have inside jokes with myself in my journal. And I kind of like the idea, like Ann Lister, that if somebody picks up my diary, even though it's in plain English, that they might not really understand what I'm talking about. You know, they might look at the date and go, I think she was going through this at the time. Is that what she's talking about? But it's not there in black and white exactly, you know. But if I really find a lyrical moment or the rhythm of it is just right, then I'm like, I need to set this to piano. I need to play guitar and do this. And, you know, my piano is better than my guitar playing. My singing is my my singing and songwriting is my top talent there. But I think you also have to bring into the writing what you have to bring to it. And you certainly don't have to be perfect at it. If you heard my guitar demos, whoo, you'd be like, are you sure that you're affiliated with the Recording Academy? But but the point isn't how perfect it is on that first vomit draft, right? The, the point is how it grows and the shape it takes. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of artists of all stripes make is that they sit down and they think it has to be perfect as soon as it leaves my hands. It has to be typed out of my fingertips without typos, without too much or too little. And it's beautiful when that can happen. I won't say it never does. But if you put that expectation on yourself or even that requirement on yourself, make yourself feel obligated to do it perfect every time. 
even the AI doesn't do it perfect every time. And we certainly can't expect ourselves ourselves as feeling humans and connecting humans to, to get it right the first time. And sometimes, honestly, also, the things that you do wrong are things you should keep. There was another song I wrote last year. Um, I'm forgetting the name of right now. Anomaly. Uh, I wrote it while I was in London. And it was another song I did not plan to release, but had to for various reasons. And um, and I, in my piano rendition, uh, in an early demo, I kept messing up the chords. I, I kept wanting it to be bright and a major chord, but I kept slipping and hitting this minor chord. And you can hear me in my London demo laughing at myself every time I did it, you know? So when I passed the demo off to a collaborator up in Seattle to record it, he kept that mistake. And at first I was very surprised. I thought, oh, I thought he would know that was a mistake and just change it. But then I realized, no, that needs to stay. And I took the song to a, a co-writing or, or a songwriting coach, Bonnie. Um, and she she said, no, I like it. In fact, you need to do it again. Bring it back in at the end, like book by bookends. Uh, that minor chord is so rich and it, I want you to return to it and you don't put it back in, put, add more of it, you know? And I took her advice in, in the final edit. Um, so I think some of those mistakes are beautiful. And I just don't think you can brew that in unless you're willing to get messy and get in the ditches and get some mud on your hands, you know? I love that, that the mistakes are beautiful because I think as um, artists, I think it's very hard as an artist to realize that because I think you want that perfection there and you want to be perfect every time and you can you can beat yourself up forever when you're not perfect. And when you're trying, I think when you're trying too hard to be perfect and trying for that perfection, I think actually it can hinder the art in some ways because then you're not looking for those happy accidents and you're not seeing the beauty and the mistakes. And it's just, it's the same thing like when you're writing and, you know, kill your darlings and, you know, kill your favorite scenes and stuff. And you don't want to do that. But then when you do, you realize it's because the other stuff can't flourish sometimes without that, I think, sometimes. So, yeah, that was beautifully put. Seriously, that was really beautifully put. <laughs> well, and I think you're so right about the perfectionism, too. It Not only does it get in our way at the beginning and the creation sometimes, but also at the ending. I think there are so many beautiful works of art, writing, painting, songs that people don't release to the public. And I know I've just called myself out in saying this. But um, but that they don't release because they don't think it's perfect enough. They think it still needs more work. I need to tweak the mix a little more. I need to edit those chapters a little more. And to your point, you know, yeah, sometimes you do need to kill those darlings and you do need to edit it and condense it down. But also sometimes you need to get out of your own way and accept that maybe it's already done like it is. And how many books go to, to being published with typos still in them, you know? And I'm not saying that's the ideal, but be willing, be willing for it to be imperfect. Because I can't tell you how many songs that I have felt that way about, like, oh, why would this anybody else like this song? Nobody else would like this song. The harmonies are good, but the lyrics are kind of all over the place. And it's such a personal song. It's not going to edify anybody else. And then somebody else that hears it, not even on iTunes or Apple Music or anything or Spotify, they'll like, hear it on one of my back page music profiles, you know, um, that only music people hear and they'll be like, oh my goodness, that song touched me so much. It was just what I needed to hear to get me through this difficult situation. And I'm like, wow, I wrote that a decade ago. I can't even believe that anybody feels that's relevant anymore. You know? So mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think you have to get out of your way. And I think the two times we're most likely to do that, to get in our way 
is at the outset when, when we are sitting down to write and we're like, no, that's not good enough. And we're tempted to just walk away. No, stay planted, sit there and finish it to whatever degree you can. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be finished in one sitting. But then when you have finished it, don't feel that this isn't good enough to release. I can't tell you how worthwhile it is to release it anyway. And the thing is, you're going to get better over time. Yes, it might not be perfect. And you might roll your eyes a little bit and blush about it, you know, a decade or 20 later when somebody goes finding it. But you learn from that process and you learn from the feedback of your fans. You know, many of us have beta readers or or people who give us feedback in the creation process, but you can't leave out the feedback of the fans and the listeners also. And I think that has informed my songwriting as much or more as what I see and hear going in or what, you know, co-writers and collaborators see or feel going in is hearing how it impacts the listener and where it connects with them in their life. Are they listening in their car? Are they choreographing to it? Do they have it on their iPod as like a calming thing on the plane? Where are they using it? How are they using it? And that gives me ideas like, oh, this song is going to be so good for X, Y, Z, you know, but at the same time, you know, the lullaby that I wrote for my adult friend, I did not expect could possibly use be used as a lullaby for children in the sequence of something that I won't talk about. But, you know, like, I think we also forget the versatility that it, for the end user, the way that it's interpreted or how they hear it may be different than what we intended or what we were trying to say, just like everyday life when people mishear you and, you know, miscommunication abounds. Um, people will interpret things a lot of different ways. Their headcanon varies, their perspective varies, but I, I think it's so important to try. And that's, that's all you can do at the end of the day. Yes. Very, very well said. Well, I could talk to you for hours and hours and we'll have to have you back at some point too. Cause I'd love to talk about that more, especially the, the beauty of the imperfections and stuff like that, which is something I really need to learn. So, so really thank you so much. And so if you want to just let everybody know, and we'll also put links in the show notes, but if you want to let everybody know where they can follow you and find your work as well. Absolutely. Uh, you can visit my website, natalienicolegilbert.com or find me on Instagram at NNG music. Um, and I definitely appreciate your Spotify follows. You don't know how much that means to us. Uh, when we do negotiate for various things, uh, when people see our Instagram follower counts or our stream counts or our follower counts on all these various platforms, it really does impact the amount that we get paid in those negotiations. Or if we get selected over somebody else, there are ways in which I, I wish it didn't like pick us on the merit. But when both things are equally meritable and both things are equally fit, they will sometimes make decisions based on those numbers. So um, even if you can't like, you know, pay for our CDs or things like that, those follow follows and likes uh, mean a, a lot to us. So uh, if you go to my Instagram at NNG Music, you'll also find my link tree that takes you off to all the platforms and various places you can listen to me. Um, so I would love to connect with you there and message me. Let me know what you think about the stuff that you listen to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And once again, everybody, the link will be to, to Natalie's website will be in the show notes so you can easily head on over there. So thank you so much again for joining me. And seriously, I would love to have you back to talk more in depth about music again, because it really is, and just art in general, but <laughs> and writing in general, but yes. I will be here. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you again, Natalie, so much for joining me. I really, really love that conversation and I really, really can't wait to have you back and talk more about more with you about music and art and writing and everything like that. So I really hope everyone else enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. 
And please make sure to check out Natalie's work and Natalie's music. It's really great. So thank you again. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod on TikTok at it's a fandom thing pod. If you have any feedback show notes, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us via our website. It's a fandom thing pod.com. Click the contact us button there. That'll shoot me an email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And while you're over there, uh, consider becoming a Patreon supporter today for as little as three bucks a month. You can also do a seven-day free trial at that level, and you'll get lots of great bonus content, including ad-free episodes. So this episode would have been ad-free for you. And you also get to, because this is coming up soon, you get to help decide the nominees for our second annual Fandom Choice Awards, which are our Best of the Year Awards. So if this is one of your favorite interviews and you want to make sure it is nominated for best interview, please head on over to the link in the show notes or go to the support us tab at our website. It's a fandomthingpod.com and become a Patreon supporter today. And remember, the best way you can support us and any indie artist out there is by sharing, telling everybody, rating us five stars on iTunes and Spotify. And thank you so, so much for listening. And until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and stop Asian hate. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.